would while we're getting ready up here. Um, this is your family information sheet. Some of you have filled this out already, but if you could just take one minute right now, take that out of your uh, family news bulletin. If you have not filled this particular sheet out, if you could do that for just for one minute, we would really, really appreciate it. Okay, so just take a minute, fill it out, and then Lisa and Kevin are back here. Just kind of pass them across the aisles, and they'll, they'll pick them up. Let's just take a minute and uh, while well, I'm getting kind of set up here, and we'll do that. It's great for, uh, for us to gather that information, make sure we have everyone's uh, correct information on there, uh, putting a new system in place in the office. So this is just really helpful, helpful for us. kind of weird standing up here not talking <laughs> it really is Kevin it really really difficult <laughs> all right when we're done with those if you could just kind of pass them either to Lisa's side or Kevin's side will be right there, just kind of push him over to the Ed and Row person, and uh, they'll pick him up. All right? Just keep, you can keep, you can, you can write and, and listen to me at the same time, so just pass him over when you're done. Okay, when we last saw Jonah, he was basically um, sitting on a beach covered with vomit. That's the easiest way to put it. And God then calls out once again to his prophet in chapter 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the city, the great city of Nineveh, and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city, and a visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh by decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let, every, let, let men and beasts be covered with sackcloth. Let, let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, God may yet relent with compassion, turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. So God repeats here in chapter 3 what he already told Jonah to do in chapter 1, but this time Jonah's a little bit wiser, okay, for his wear, and he, he obeys God. I am sure that the, the fear and the doubt and the, the frustration 
he had about uh, going to Nineveh was still there. But this time he doesn't let his, his emotions dictate his actions. This time he listens to God. Now, I just want to stop for a moment as we, as we begin here and, uh, and kind of um, uh, make a point. I believe that God has called some of you to do something specific in the past. And because of fear and doubt, you stopped. You didn't continue to do it. You allowed your emotions to dictate your actions. And now you're feeling a little bit of regret or whole, maybe a whole lot of regret. Maybe this happened years ago. You knew God was calling you to do that thing, but you were afraid. And you let fear and you let doubt. Well, you know, my, I'm sure maybe that's not God talking to me. See, fear starts out and then it brings doubt into our lives so we can talk ourselves out of what we know we heard. So maybe it was something that God has called you to do and because of fear and doubt you didn't do it and now you're feeling a, a little bit of regret. What I love about chapter 3 is that God gives this imperfect prophet a second chance. Our God is a God of second chances. He calls out to Jonah once again. Go to the great city of Nineveh. God is a God of second chances. And if if Jonah got a second chance, if God gave Jonah a second chance, then he could give you a second chance as well. God is still calling. You see, you think God forgets these things. You just kind of walk away. You feel regret. You think I missed my opportunity. It's not true. God may weave it in a little different pattern, but God is still calling. So clean off the vomit, if you will, and get busy. It's not over. It's not finished. God is a God of second chances. And if you open up your heart and you open up your mind, you say, God, I know I walked away from you. I know I didn't follow your call a few years back, but I'm ready now, Lord. Open it up to me. Send me one more time. Give me another opportunity and God will do that. Jonah seems to be a changed man here in chapter 2 and in chapter 3. But the, the question really is, it, it really is he. See, there's nothing like an experience like this, a life-threatening experience on, on a ship at sea and being swallowed up in the, in the, in the belly of a huge fish to kind of change your behavior, Right? I mean, nothing like it. You know, you're on a ship and your life's, you think your life is over and there's the storm and then you get swallowed by this huge fish. Nothing like an, an event like that in your life to change. I know people in my own family that God had, you know, they've been going through something. You know, maybe they got a disease or something. Oh, God, if you, if you do this, I will. I promise I will. Nothing like an experience like he experienced to change a person's behavior. But see, the problem with changing behavior, it's only part of the issue. If we don't get to the core issue, if we don't really look into our hearts and look into, into our, 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 our lives truly, our hearts and our, our, the attitude that goes on in our lives, we usually fall back into the same pattern of behavior over time. Given enough time, a person who, you know, they, they, God does something in their lives, and they just come alive, and you're looking at that person and saying, that's amazing. You see the transformation in that person's life? Their behavior changes. But if you don't change your attitude and you don't change your heart over time, those same behaviors begin to creep back into your life. We need to be very, very careful. So Jonah is vomited, okay, up on the beach. And now he's taking his long walk to Nineveh, cleaning himself off. Now, maybe it's just me, but if I had a long walk to Nineveh, 
all right, to go to Nineveh. And I'd just been through this experience on the ship, and I spent all that time in the belly of a fish. I, I would be, you'd think that he would come up with a pretty good, pretty good message to the people of Nineveh. You know, you'd think he'd be coming up with something that was a little bit motivational. Like, you know, just think about like Braveheart, like Braveheart, you know. If you had one chance, just one chance to repent, to say to God that I was wrong from that day until now, maybe he takes some vomit and rub it on his face, you know what I mean? Get, the, get, get some color on his face, take it. All prophets had staffs, right? You would think he'd raise his staff up, like, you know, and talk to him. You know, if he had this one chance to, you know, and he'd give the whole brave heart speech, and people would be moved, and he, because he had all this time to think about it, right? It should have been one of the most amazing speeches. Instead, this is what Jonah says. This is what Jonah preaches. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Thank you. And, and he didn't even say thank you. I mean, he wasn't, that's not written. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Remember I told you two weeks ago there's eight words of prophecy in the entire book? There it is. Very moving. Right? Very moving. I mean, all that time to think about it. All these people who need to repent. Understand that if they don't repent, they're going to be totally and utterly wiped out. This would not rate as one of the top speeches of all time. Right? 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. But you've got to remember, Jonah, Jonah hated Nineveh. Remember? Enemies. If you, if you haven't been here in the last couple of weeks, go back and get the last two, the last two uh, CDs and to give you a background of why he hated Nineveh. But he hated Nineveh. But what it also shows me and should tell us is maybe, maybe he wasn't, maybe the, the time spent inside the fish didn't bring about the, the, the transformation that we thought that it did. Now, now, in Jonah's defense, this is the message that he was told to preach. This is the message the people needed to hear, and so this is the message that Jonah gives them, 40 more days, and it will be overturned. So he basically, you know, followed the letter of the law and, you know, did what he, exactly what he had to do. And it must have worked because the response of the Ninevites is immediate and overwhelming, in chapter 3, verse 5, it says, and they believed God. So he goes there from place to place, you know, 40 more days, and Nineveh, he probably had his hands in his pockets, didn't even look him in the eye, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. And it says in, in verse 5 that the people believed. They believed. Shock of all shocks, the people actually believe. This all, when I was writing this, it also showed me something else. It, it showed me that when it comes to God's word, it is not the messenger, but the power of the message that transforms lives, that changes lives, that impacts lives. So anyone who preaches or teaches the word of God needs to keep that in mind so they keep their pride in check. It is the word of God that brings the power. It is the word of God that transforms someone's life. It is the word. It is the word. It is not the messenger. It is the message that brings the power. We see that right here in Jonah. He, he preaches that eight, those eight words, four in the Hebrew, and people, it says they believe, they believe God. Now, their belief could have gone no farther than maybe the, the sailors on the ship who, who believed God and, and they, they had a healthy fear of God. 
Or it could have been that they actually turned to the Lord. They actually repented and turned to the Lord. Either way, the Ninevites believed God and they responded. And the king was filled with conviction. And he calls out to everyone to to repent. He calls for repentance. He goes through this process. They acknowledge their sin. They acknowledge their sin. Verse 8. Listen to what it says. It says, let everyone give up their evil ways. Now, say Say everyone. That's important because you read into the Old Testament. You say, oh, how could God wipe out all these people? How could God say to wipe out? God, God brings judgment on a nation or a city once everyone has gotten to the point. In almost every case you'll find that there's no one left who's righteous. There's no one left who worships God. There's no one left who's good. He says, everyone, let everyone give up their evil ways, verse 8. And then they express their sorrow for their behavior in verses 5 through 9. They express that sorrow. And, and, and then, then their sorrow is translated. This is so important. It starts inside. And if we go back to Jonah, Jonah's behavior seems to be changed. But in, in Nineveh here, there, 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 there's a conviction the sorrow starts inside, and the sorrow is translated into, into action, into action. In verse 5, it talks about their fasting. He says, let no one you know, put on sackcloth, and they sit, on, they sit in, the, in, the, in the dust. You know, no one is to eat. No one is to do anything. We, we have to do this. And so they, they, they fast, and they, and they repent. They put on the sackcloth. They sit in the dirt. Their sorrow is translated into action. And it's the same path that every single one of us need to take. The path of forgiveness and salvation. You want to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ? It is a path of, of, of that same sorrow, saying to yourself, I recognize my sin. I'm sorry for my sin. I'm going to hate it and stop it. And that's exactly what they did. It's the same path that every single person in this room has taken or needs to take. A path of of confessing your sin, a path of forgiveness that God forgives, and that leads to salvation. What we see happening in this whole city is absolutely amazing. Their response is absolutely amazing. It's an amazing thing. Jonah sees 120,000 people turn to the Lord. See, don't miss this. We miss this in the story. From kindergarten, when you're teaching your kindergarten class, all the way maybe to now, we're missing the real, the real point of this story. 120,000 people turn to God. As we sit here this morning, each individual, do you believe that God can do the same thing in our community? Do you believe, I mean, we sit here as believers, as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ. Do we believe that God can do the same thing in our community? Do you believe that God can do the same thing in your schools? Do you believe that God can do the same thing in your neighborhood, in our city? That's the question. Look what God has done. God, the word of God came through speaking. God says, go and preach, go and speak, go and invest in. And 120, the whole city repents and comes to know God. Do you believe that that can happen now? One man, 120,000 people. Grace Chapel's vision is to be a global community of Christ followers, awakening imagination, igniting passion, and unleashing purpose. Okay, there's the vision. We have an incarnational philosophy, which means when Jesus was living on this earth, when Jesus was here, how did he do ministry? He talked to Pharisees and Sadducees. He talked to tax collectors, the rich, the poor, the afflicted, government officials, prostitutes, 
lepers. Same message. Jesus had the exact same message, but a different approach depending on who he was talking to. So when he talked to prostitutes, you always noticed that Jesus was very compassionate when he was talking to prostitutes or tax collectors because they usually came to him on their hands and knees crawling to him. They recognized their sin and he helped them up and go and sin no more and invited himself over to their house for dinner. When he talked to Pharisees and Sadducees, they had hardened hearts. They looked, they looked fine on the outside in some of their behavior, but the inside, he said, you are whitewashed tombs. You're dead above the, above the chest. Why? Same message of repentance and salvation that comes through him, but a different approach because he understood who he was talking to. The only difference with us is we don't understand everyone we're talking to, but each one of us is in a different culture, if you will. It's Procter & Gamble has its own culture. I would not be able to do very well preaching the gospel to the people who are in that particular culture. Your school, the people you hang around with in your school, your group has a specific, if you will, culture or dynamic that other people would never understand. You have words and phrases that you use that other people, it's an inside joke to you. You all have. God has called every single one of us to reach out. We all have influence. And God, let me say this again. God has called every single person in this room to reach out. To reach out to their sphere of influence. Jesus could reach any sphere of influence because he was God. And the Bible says in John, he understood what was in a man. He could read a person's heart. We have each been given a sphere of influence. And it's our responsibility to reach out to our sphere of influence. Every person breathing in this room. Incarnational philosophy. When Jesus was here, how did he do it? How can we follow his lead? We don't believe as a church, I'm building on things, we don't believe as a church that there is secular and sacred. We believe if something's not sinful, then by definition it's... Okay, let's say that again. If something is not sinful, by definition it's... Exactly. That's what we believe. It is sacred. That means whatever we do in our homes, whatever you do when you go to work, whatever you do when you go to school, whatever you do on the field is sacred. Why? It's not sinful. Going to school is not sinful. You're not leaving the church and going from a sacred environment into a sinful environment at school. You bring Christ into that environment. Whatever you do is sacred. At work, at home, at school. Every one of us here this morning has influence. And we need to use our time, our talents, and our treasures to further the kingdom of God. It's as simple as that. We need to use our time, our talents, and our treasures. I am not responsible. I am not solely responsible for reaching out to our community. You are not paying me that I'm I'm your pastor and I'm in a sacred world and you're all in a secular world. And so you give me, you allow me through your tithe to do this full time. And it's my job to go reach the entire community while you, you are now exempt from doing that. My job, biblically, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 12, my job is to train you, to teach you, to, to, and, and to motivate you, to equip you to do the work of ministry, to go out into your sphere of influence and, and, and engage people in your sphere of influence. God called Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh, and he didn't want to go. And even when he does go, he goes with an attitude. We see that. 
in the way he's responding. He goes with an attitude. He goes because he's forced. God is calling every single one of us to do something specific, to reach out to our sphere of influence. I don't care if you're in elementary school or you're in junior high or you're in high school or you work at P&G or you work at GE or you own your own business or you're a professional athlete. It doesn't matter. You have a sphere of influence and God is calling you to reach out to your sphere of influence. If that's true, if that's true, then why can't we see transformation in our schools, in our places of work? Why can't then we see revival in our community, and in our city. Why can't that happen? 120,000 people. You think the fish is a big deal. It's really not. You think the fish is the, is the headline of the story. It's really not. It's that God can do incredible things. It's that God wants to do amazing things. And we've been putting together the pieces of the puzzle over the last few years. We've been putting together the pieces of the puzzle. Listen, we have one of the best outreach facilities in Cincinnati, right over here. One of the best out 2,000 people a week in September through April start coming into that building. 2,000 people a week from our community start coming into the Grace Impact Center. We have those things set up. We have someone willing to help fund multiple positions in our children and youth ministry. We're going to be hiring multiple people. We're going to be able to have a full or part-time person that will oversee, that will help reach out to every high school in our area here. Now, our, our, our family ministry, our men's ministry, our women's ministry, our life group ministries have all gotten stronger. They have all gotten stronger. We have one of the best marketplace ministries in the country, if not the world, right here at Grace Chapel. Do you understand that? We are prepared to train anyone who works in the marketplace to go and be a marketplace minister. We're, we're in a position, to, and if you don't know that, you, you, well, if, you don't, you're, if you're new, you, sh- you maybe don't know that, but if you don't know that and you've kind of been coming and kind of missing it, we can train you to be a marketplace minister. These aren't, these aren't ministries that are just out there willy-nilly. They, we, we have a specific plan in mind for the entire body of Christ to influence our community and our city. We have a plan in place. What I just described to you was a clear plan of action of how we're going to take what God has given us as individuals and I will do my best and Kevin and all the other staff people here will do their best to train you to go into your sphere of influence and impact this world. So Jonah sees the entire city change. The entire city changes. And like I said, the most amazing thing here, the most amazing thing is found in chapter 3 verse 10. And it says, basically, God had compassion on him. They repented. 120,000 people repent, and then God has compassion on them. Now, understand something. God is under no obligation here to forgive. He's under no, obli- no obligation to, to, uh, to do anything, to, have any, to show compassion. He, 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 they deserve, understand, they deserve, they deserve judgment. That's what they deserve. That's what got him here in the first place. The hideous things that they did were so overwhelming, God says, I've had enough, I've seen enough, and now comes judgment. They repent, God shows compassion, but he's under no obligation to show compassion because what they deserve is judgment. 
God would not be wrong. God would not be unjustified in bringing destruction on the whole city. And the king acknowledges that in chapter 3 and verse 8. He acknowledges it. We read that already. He acknowledges that. They're not even arguing with that fact. God's under no obligation. The most amazing thing about this entire book, the entire book of Jonah, is not that he was swallowed up by a giant fish. I, use, I keep using giant fish because great fish, because that's what the Bible says. It was a giant fish or a huge whale. It, I, it doesn't matter to me. But that's not the most amazing thing about the book of Jonah, that he was swallowed up by a huge fish. The most amazing thing about Jonah is that 120,000 people come and respond to God's message and God forgives them. It's absolutely incredible. But see, here's the problem. Here's, here's the problem with, with Christians in general. We've forgotten how to dream, to believe in the impossible, we, for some reason, we've maybe been disappointed or, 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 or it, maybe it's maybe apathy, but we have, it's created a spirit of spiritual mediocrity within the church. And I'm not talking about just Grace Chapel. I'm not even talking about Grace Chapel. I'm talking about, well, yeah, I'm going to talk about Grace Chapel. We'll leave it here. It's created a spirit of mock mediocrity within the church as a whole. That kind of spirit, it's, it's, like, it's, it's like permeated us. You actually think that you go, the purpose, you actually believe that the purpose for you going to work every day is to collect a paycheck and to get a promotion. You actually think the reason you go to school when you go to school is to get, good, you know, get decent grades and then maybe get a scholarship in your sports and so that you can go on and get a scholarship and go to college. None of those things are wrong, but I'm telling you right now, listen to what I'm telling you. There is a greater purpose for your life. There is a greater purpose for your life. We need to believe that God wants to transform this community, our community. We need to believe that God desires to transform our community. We need to believe that God wants your co-workers to come to Christ. We need to believe that God, you need to believe that God wants to transform your school and your friends in your school. You need to believe that God wants to see every single person in your household saved. You need to believe that God wants to fill every single seat in this sanctuary two or three times over and every seat in every sanctuary in the sit and across Cincinnati he wants to fill every seat with people who want to be changed whose lives want to be transformed we need to believe that in the book of Jonah we're taught that God would rather God would rather show compassion than judgment he would rather show compassion than judgment see here's the thing God wants to do miracles and I don't know about you but I want to see miracles in my life I have seen miracles. I want that to continue in my life. I don't want a life of mediocrity, of Christian mediocrity. I want to see God do miracles in the lives of people and working through me and working through you, speaking to you and having you respond, overcoming your fear and doing what God has called you to do. If God simply wanted to punish Nineveh, he didn't have to send Jonah. That was his goal. He could have just destroyed the whole city. The things that we learn, the things that we see in the story of Jonah are only a shadow of what is to come in Jesus Christ. Only a shadow. If God's desire is to teach us that, that he would rather show compassion than judgment in the story of Jonah, then how much more? How much more in the life of Jesus Christ? Whenever you're in the Old Testament, you're reading something like this, say to yourself, how much more? Say it with me. 
How much more? Say it one more time. That's what you need to ask yourself whenever you're reading a story in the Old Testament. How much more than in the life of Christ? See, sometimes we get it confused. We say we're under the law, we're under grace, so we don't have to live that way anymore. No, 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 no. Read the book of Hebrews. How much more than are we who know Christ? Should we live a righteous life, a passionate life? A bold life. How much more than we who know Christ? John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And I'll tell you what, it would be so easy for us right now to, to pick on, so easy and safe to pick on Jonah and not ask ourselves some really tough questions as individuals in the church. And I want you to open up your heart and I want you just to ask God, just God, open up my heart because we need to ask ourselves as individuals some important questions. How involved are we in furthering the kingdom of God? How involved am I in furthering the kingdom of God? Here's a question. If you didn't come to church, would anyone know that you're a follower of Jesus Christ by how you live your life other than showing up at church? Would anyone know? Would anyone call you? Could you be convicted in a court of law for being a follower of Jesus Christ if you didn't come? to church those are questions we need to ask ourselves because there's a battle going on here for the lives of people for the lives and souls of people there's a battle going on in this world and the world wants to turn christianity into some weak religion they want to turn the church into a social club and they want to turn jesus christ the lion of judah into some domesticated house cat that's what they want to do that's what they want to see I remember the, 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 the Chronicles of Narnia where Mr. Tumnus says to Lucy, remember, he's not a tame lion. He's not a tame lion. But what's happened in Christianity, what's happened to us is we have become tame followers of Jesus Christ, my friends, and it is completely pathetic and sad. We, became, we become tame followers, and you, you wonder why you ask the question, why, why is my faith, why do I feel like so powerless and bored with my faith? You ask the question, why are our children graduating and not coming back to the church? You ask those questions. You've you got to ask yourself, why is it that I can't stand up for my beliefs in the, in, the, in, in, in the face of social pressure? There's the answer. We have become domesticated. We have become, in, we become intimidated. The world tells us what sexual immorality is, and we whimper. Not only do we whimper, that we go along with it. They tell us when life begins. They define murder, and we cower. We, we, we literally cower. The IRS tells me, as a pastor, what I can and cannot say from this stage. And, and, and if they do, if I say anything that does what they don't want me to do, then, then I'm breaking the law and they can take away our non-private status and somehow I'm supposed to shiver. Well, I don't like President Obama's views on some issues. I don't like some of his policies. I'm not voting for him. Let me see what the law is. It says, expressly endorse or oppose candidates for political office. I am expressly opposing his candidacy for political office. This morning, uh, from this pulpit. I, I'm not talking Republicans, Democrats. Don't get lost here. I'm not saying all Christians are Republicans and all these people are Democrats. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that no one should be able to tell me what I can say from this pulpit. If it was a Republican I didn't agree with, I'd get up and say the exact same thing. I oppose some of President Bush, Bush's views. 
But I'm telling you right now, you know how many churches have lost their nonprofit status from getting up and saying that from the pulpit? Guess. One church in New York lost its 501c3 status, but it did not lose its, its nonprofit, it did not lose its um, tax exempt status. One. You can take that CD, send it to the IRS, put it on there, come and get us. Okay? And I have 500 lawyers begging them to come and get us. They won't challenge it. They know it's unconstitutional. Lyndon Baines Johnson came up with that in 1954. From our Constitution until 1954, we can see anything we want. Here's my point. They want us to cower. They want us to be afraid. They want to intimidate us. That's the reason they passed those, those illegal, the unconstitutional laws. I just broke the law, and I don't care. Because I don't. when the IRS says jump, I don't say how high, I say pound salt. When Jesus says jump, I say how high, Lord? How high? How low do you want me to go? How high do you want me to jump? Listen, listen, in, 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 the, in the academic world, they intimidate us and tell us we're intellectual morons because we don't agree. With, they tell us how we got here. And we're supposed to, they tell students that they evolved from a primordial ooze and then they wonder why our students have poor self-esteem. And I'm the intellectual idiot here. I'm intellectually challenged. Listen, I was not, I did not evolve from a lower life form. I was created by a higher life form. I was created by a higher life form. And you know what I go by? I go by, I go by Matthew. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, it says this. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Listen to me. Jesus is calling. Who are you following? It's no, there's no question. Jesus is calling. I wish I could name every person in the room. You know, Jesus is calling you, John, and Jesus is calling you, Ed, and Jesus is calling you, Sam, and Jesus is calling you, Sally. I wish I could name. Jesus is calling you. The question is, when you're in high school, in junior high, as adults, when you go to work, Jesus is calling. The question is, who are you going to follow? Who are you following? Or are you are you intimidated? They're going to come and get us. They're going to take away our nonprofit status. They have people who come to churches and sit there and threaten pastors. If they open their mouths, they're going to tell on them. And we whimper back and we slink back. The world tries to intimidate us and we just slink back. There's a song as we close here. There's a song by Keith Green. Anybody remember Keith Green? Anybody? A couple of people. Don't lose, especially you teenagers, don't lose focus on the guy's clothes. This is the late 70s, okay? I'm dating myself, okay? Don't lose focus on his clothes. What I want you to do, I want you to please, I want you to hear his words, and I want you to evaluate your own heart and your, and, and your own life right now.